0: luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back at it again with another new episode in our long series on Lutheran confessions. Uh, Basically, again, it's just a rounding out of the Lutheran theology, how we articulate it, how we interpret it, and our stances on various doctrines. So if you are not a patron with us, then you're quite truthfully missing out because we are uh, doing a lot of additional episodes. For instance, this week I've recorded part three of the baptismal uh, discussion that I'm working through. And uh, so week one, we looked at uh, sacrament and ordinance. Week two, we looked at scripture. And then week three and probably four and five, we're going to be looking at early church fathers. And then we're going to uh, look at some other doctrinal pieces and uh, basically trying to articulate what what it is that we as Lutherans confess. So we're going to go back to the Augsburg Confession on that. Uh, as we are working through the Lutheran theology, um, you know, I, I present these episodes ahead of time for you and uh, for the patrons at least, and then you will get these on a Tuesday or a Friday drop. So if you become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, you can do a whole year that's 10 dollars. I think I give a discount and I'm also working on some other promotions that if you are a new patron or even existing patron, then you will get some uh, bonuses and perks, maybe some merchandise and stuff like that. Uh, we are working on building up to a giveaway. So I'd love to give a commentary away of the reader's choice. And, uh, so that's that, uh, we've got a lot coming at you in coming weeks. Um, as this episode drops, we wrapped up Proverbs last Friday, and uh, we will be getting into the Psalms this week. And if you hear a little little guy in the background of my studio, I am currently hanging out with my son uh, as my wife is out uh, at a Bible study, so uh, he is joining us, and hopefully he'll not make too much racket. But up oh, there he goes, little little squirmy. So we're uh, you know we talked uh, last week about doing um, these. Articles, these confessions, and looking at this commentary of them. And, you know, I I started to really think about it, and I might have jumped the gun on just going through this commentary set. Uh, And uh, so I want to kind of lay out what I'm thinking about in the next few episodes here. So, as we progress in the coming weeks on the Lutheran theology, I, like I said, I think I kind of jumped the gun a little bit um, on the commentary section because really the Book of Concord has wonderful commentary in it already. Uh, The book I have in my possession is additional commentary. And again, there's plethora of commentaries on all sorts of things in the Bible uh, from various theologians. Even within the same denomination, there are many, many, many different types of commentary. But I was really kind of, just kind of examining the formula of Concord before I started recording this. And I really think that might be just as impactful for the listener. So we're going to Kind of, uh, we're going to wrap with this episode today, and we're going to do one uh, commentary on Article Seventeen, the Return of Christ for Judgment, uh, and then we're going to go right into the formula. Then we're going to work through the formula on some various pieces, some of those that are uh, you know pretty hard hitting, uh, and then we're going to go do the small called articles, and then the large and small Catechism that Luther wrote. Then we should be done with the Book of Concord, and we'll move into the baptismal episodes. The Lord's Supper episodes and other Lutheran theology that as we come across it. So that is uh, kind of the uh, play, the game that I'm trying to work out the play for the game. I guess I don't know. Uh, we're, we we want to make sure that we hammer out all of the proper content for your uh, for your listening pleasure. So uh, the return of crisis one was a uh, question. Uh, presented to me by my uh, patrons. They wanted me to read some commentary on it. Uh, I did a whole long, long, long series on eschatology. So you can go all the way back to August of 2020 and listen through, I think there's got to be over 50 episodes in that set. Um, But go back and listen to those. Those are, you know, they're really, really good content that uh, I was able to hopefully produce for you. Again, not an exhaustive search. There's Uh, So much more that can be had at that. Um, But I think this article helps lay out just some basic fundamental principles to the Lutheran understanding of eschatology. So let's look at it. The text in article 17 states this, our churches also teach that at the consummation of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will rise up all the dead to the godly and the elect. He will give eternal life into the and endless joy but ungodly men and devils he will condemn to be tormented without end. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. They also condemn others who are now spreading the Jewish opinions on the effect that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly will take possession of the kingdom of the world, the godly being suppressed everywhere. So there's a lot that... Uh, Lutherans really assert right off the bat, and if you are familiar with any of the um, four major views, we did whole episodes on those last uh, or two years ago now, a year and a half ago, and we went through dispensationalism, pre and and, and historical, and then or yeah, premillennialist, uh, dispensational, premillennialist, historical, premillennialist and then a post and amillennialist or revealed eschatology. Lutherans would be traditionally more in a revealed eschatology category, uh, and that very much states that we reject the Anabaptist who think uh, that the church or the punishments will come to an end for the ungodly. This essentially would be a universalist opinion that uh, at some point all of the uh, people will then be reconciled back to Christ after a short period of punishment, not biblical. Uh, we also reject that the godly will take possession of the kingdom of the world, uh, the ungodly being suppressed everywhere. So we do reject that notion, which is uh, kind of a, some elements to the post-millennialist argument, uh, as well as within the first statement, the first few lines of the statement, we reject the any of the pre aspects because there's no pre-rapture uh, before, you know, some seven-year tribulation and thousand-year millennial reign. So uh, you can go back and catch all those episodes. I had a wonderful, wonderful pastor uh, who joined me for the Amillennialist episode. So go back and listen to that, and uh, you'll be hopefully greatly rewarded by his knowledge. So let's uh, let's dig into some of this commentary, and then we'll see where time allows us to be for the day. The German text contains no significant variance, this article, Uh, consists of three parts. One, the affirmation of the belief in Christ's return for final judgment over all people. Two, the rejection of anything which is suggested of the doctrine of uh, apocalystis. And three, the rejection of the notion of uh, earthly millennial reign. So here's commentary. To the extent that it is possible to detect any definite structure in the article, in the Augsburg, Article 17 forms its conclusion. This article which follow the articles which follow are statements on questions uh, which receive special treatment for practical reasons. Luther's Confessions in 1528 also concludes with the Last Judgment. Apart from the logic of closing with any short summary of Christian teaching with the Last Judgment, its connection with the previous article should be emphasized. The discussion on civil affairs is not seen in its proper perspective unless it's kept in mind that this world will pass away when Christ establishes his kingdom and glory. The Augsburg Confession adheres to the Apostles' Creed, be- but because of the Anabaptists, it was necessary to speak about the last things in more detail than the Apostles' Creed does. The article adds that the devil and the ungodly will suffer in eternity. This is not because of any particular interest in emphasizing the nature of punishment Luther's confession states that the wicked together with the devil and his angels shall uh, perish eternally the Swashburg articles speak of Christ punishing the ungodly and condemning them eternally together with the devil's while the expressions may be different their common bond is the belief of the an eternal separation between believers and the ungodly this is the article's main point which is further demonstrated in the condemnation of the Anabaptists, who have revived the ancient doctrine of apocatastasis i never heard of that word before. <laughs> this doctrine, attributed especially to Origen, held that all things will be restored at the end of times and that the devil himself would be reconciled to God. In the first edition of the Uxberg Confession, Origen's name was included. In addition, the Augsburg opposes those who believe that before the resurrection, the righteous will rule on earth and suppress the ungodly. Here the AC attacks the idea of a millennial reign. Shortly before the Diet, proceedings had been taken against an Anabaptist who had entertained thoughts of a conquest of the Holy Land to establish an earthly prophetic kingdom. Even apart from such an occasion, however, The Reformers are clearly opposed to the notion of establishing the kingdom of God on earth. Hey, buddy. Any such thing is prohibited by the doctrine of the two kingdoms. In addition, we'll talk about that as we get into more of the Lutheran theology. In addition, the actions of Thomas Munzer had contributed greatly to the revulsion against the line of thought. A confrontation naturally offers no objection to Article 17 and receives no further commentary in the Apology. Where Melanchthon simply repeats the content of the article, this lack of disagreement and an overview of the theological historical context at the time of the Reformation are evidence that there is nothing seriously at stake here. All that is, was necessary was to affirm the teaching of the church and to reject the contemporary deviations. So that is uh, going to kind of take, conclude our time a little bit in the uh, um commentary. Now again, I you know, if you want to read more commentary, I'll gladly send you uh the links to this book that I have. Um but uh, you can also go and just get the Book of Concord online and we're going to read um we'll read through some of the formula of Concord. And again, uh there's a lot of great commentary in this, and so I hope it will help you to understand. Now, we did look at article 17, but that was one that was requested. I should have wrapped it in last week's show, but uh, time did not allow me to, but I want to, uh, turn our attention back to article five. This is coming from the formula of Concord. And this, I think will help explain how Lutherans just ultimately interpret scripture. And we're going to look at some of these elements, uh, as we dig into it, uh, you know, we'll be able to parallel this teaching with, you know, episodes down the road. So, uh, this is a uh, long gospel, And the chief question at issue in this controversy is the question has been Is the preaching of the Holy Gospel, strictly speaking, only a preaching of grace which proclaims the forgiveness of sins, or is it also preaching of repentance and reproof that condemns unbelief, since unbelief is condemned not in the law but wholly through the gospel? The affirmative thesis is the pure doctrine of God's word. We believe and teach and confess that the distinctions between law and gospel is an especially glorious light that is maintained with great diligence in the church. So that according to St. Paul's admonition, the word of God may be rightly divided. We believe teach and confess that strictly speaking, the law is a divine doctrine, which teaches that teaches what is right and God pleasing and which condemns everything that is sinful and contrary to God's will. Therefore, Everything which condemns sin is and belongs to the proclamation of the law. But the gospel, strictly speaking, is the kind of doctrine that teaches that a man who has not kept the law and is condemned by it should believe, namely, that Christ has satisfied and paid for all guilt and without man's merit has obtained and won for him the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness that avails before God and eternal life. The word gospel is not used in a single sense in Holy Scripture. That, in this is the original occasion of the controversy. Therefore we ta- we believe, teach, and confess that when we when the word gospel means the entire doctrine of Christ, which he proclaimed personally in his teaching ministry, and which the apostles also set forth according to the examples noted in Mark chapter one verse fifteen and Acts chapter twenty verse twenty four. And it is correct to say or write that the gospel is a proclamation both of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But when the law, of the gospel, when, but when the law and gospel are opposed to each other, as when Moses uh, is spoken of as a teacher of the law in contrast to Christ as a preacher of the gospel, then we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a proclamation or contribution and reproof, but is, strictly speaking, precisely a comforting and joyful message which does not reprove or terrify, but comforts consciences that are frightened by the law, directs them solely to the merit of Christ, and raises them up again by the delightful proclamation of God's grace in favor through uh, the merits of Christ. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read some more of this because I find it to be exceptionally important for us, and then we're going to read the antithesis. Uh, so there's uh, just a few statements left, statement 8. Now, as to the discourse of sin, disclosure of sin, as long as men hear only the law and hear nothing of Christ, the veil of Moses covers their eyes. As a result, they fail to learn the true nature of sin from the law, and thus they become either conceited hypocrites like the Pharisees, or they despise, uh, or they despair as Judas did, etc. Therefore, Christ takes the law into his own hands, and explains it spiritually, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Romans 7, 14. Then God's wrath is revealed from heaven over all sinners. And man learn how fierce it is. Thus, they are directed back to the law. And now they learn from it for the first time the real nature of their sin and the acknowledgement which Moses could never have wrung for them. Therefore, the proclamation of suffering and death of Christ, the Son of God, is an earnest and terrifying preaching and advertisement of God's wrath, which really directs people into the law. After the veil of Moses has been removed from them, so they now know that for the first time what great things God's de- God demands of us in the law, none of which we could fulfill, and we should seek now all our righteousness in Christ. Nevertheless, as long uh, as long as this... Namely, the passion and death of Christ proclaims God's wrath and terrifies people. It is not, strictly speaking, the preaching of the gospel, but the preaching of Moses and the law. And therefore, it is an alien work. As Christ, by which we, he comes as, to his proper office, namely to preach grace, and to comfort, and to make alive. And this is the preaching of the gospel, strictly speaking. All right, so we've got uh, the antithesis here. Uh, This is the rejected contrary doctrine. Hence, we reject and deem it as false and detrimental when men teach that the gospel, strictly speaking, is the proclamation and conviction and reproof and not exclusively a proclamation of grace. Thereby, the gospel is, again, changed into a teaching of the law. The merit of Christ and the holy scriptures are obscured Christians are robbed of true comfort, and the doors are again open to the palpacy. So this will lead us into a question on the third function of the law. There's three uses of the law, but uh, this is the third function that often is uh, rejected or essentially uh, kind of stood against by the Lutherans. The law has been given to men for three reasons. One, to maintain an external discipline against unruly and disobedient men. Two, to lead men to the knowledge of their sin. And three, after they are reborn and although the flesh still, uh, flesh still inherit, inherits in them, to give them on that account a definite rule according to which they should pertain and regulate their entire life. It is concerning the f- third function of the law that is a controversy had arisen amongst few theologians. The question, therefore, is whether or not the law is to be urged upon reborn Christians. One party says yes, the other party says no. Affirmative theses is the correct teaching, Christian teaching in this controversy. This is what Lutherans believe. And we'll read through this. We believe, teach, and confess that... Although people who generally believe and whom God has truly converted are freed through Christ and the curse and coercion of the law, they are on that account without the law. On the contrary, they have been redeemed by the Son of God precisely that they should, them ex- uh, they should exercise themselves day and night by the law, Psalm one nineteen one. And in the same way, our first parents, even before the fall, did not live without the law, for the law of God was written in their hearts when they were created in the image of God. We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be diligently applied and not only to unbelievers but to the impotent and the impotent but also to people who are genuinely believing, truly converted, regenerated, and justified through faith. For although they indeed are reborn and have been renewed in the spirit of mind, such regeneration, renewal, is incomplete in this world. In fact, it is only begun. And the spirit of the mind and the believers are in, contra- in constant war against their flesh. That is their corrupt nature and kind, which clings to them until death on account of this old Adam who adheres in people's intellect will and their powers. It is necessary for the law of God consistently to light their way least in their merely human devotion. They undertake self decree and self chosen acts of serving God. This is further necessary, least the old Adam go his own self-willed way. We must be coerced against his own will, will not only by the adam-, 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 adam mission and threats of the law, but also by its punishments and plagues and follow the spirit and surrender himself a captive as uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 27 states, Romans 6, 12, Galatians 6, 14, Psalm 119, 1, Hebrews 13, 21. Concerning the distinction between the works of the law and the fruits of the Spirit, we believe, teach, and confess that works done according to the law and are called works of the law are as long as they are extorted from people only under the coercion of punishment and the threat of God's wrath. Fruits of the Spirit, however, are the works of which the spirit of God who dwells in believers works through the regenerated and which the regenerated perform in so far as they are reborn and do them as spontaneously as if they knew of no command threat or reward. In this sense, the children of God live in the law and walk according to the law of God. In the epistle, St. Paul calls it the law of Christ and, and the law of the mind. Thus God's children are under the law are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 7:23,81 and verse 14. Therefore, both for both the penitent and impotent for regeneration, for regenerated and unregenerated people, the law is and remains one of the same law, namely the unchangeable will of God. The difference as far as obedience is concerned, rests exclusively with man and the unregenerated man. Just as regenerated according to the flesh does what is demanded by, of him by the law under coercion and unwilling, uh, but the believer without coercion and a willing spirit insofar as reborn does what no threat of the law could ever wrung uh, from him. The antithesis. According, accordingly, we condemn as dangerous and subversive of Christian discipline and true piety the erroneous teaching that the law is not to be urged in the manner of and measure above described upon christians and genuine believers but upon non-believers non christians and the impotent so understanding third use of the law it's uh and, and sometimes i think the language may not have been quite as clear as i wanted it to be but if we take uh the first two uses of law let's go back to those let's look at those first two uses again uh, this is to maintain external discipline against unruly and disobedient men so uh, the first use of the law keeps you confined in uh, living outside of the norm of the will of God. For instance, as a Christian, your first use of the law restricts you and keeps you on the path guided towards Christ. You won't be murdering people. You won't be you know, committing adultery, though you may. I mean... Paul killed people. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really go back to what scripture shows me. And, and the fallibility of man is, is very evident there. David was an adulterer and a murderer. So was Paul. And, but that doesn't give us the excuse. But the first use of the law is the external discipline. It's how we, you know, look and say, okay, these are the, essentially the bumpers of life. Uh, the second use of the law is that you lead men to acknowledge of Of their sin. So when I preach a sermon, I am delivering most of the time the second use of the law. I am demonstrating to the listener, the congregant, that their sin is killing them and they need to be freed from that. But if I go and say you can only be freed from it if you do these certain works, then that's the third use of the law. I'm saying that if you have to do these things actively in order to live according to the law, then you're going to be punished under the law, as Paul tells us in Romans. So the third use of the law becomes a very sticky point for Lutherans because it is not our job as preachers to adhere another law upon them. I, I give them the law in, in essentially the second use as I am highlighting the sin that might be running rampant in their lives, and then I turn and deliver them the gospel which will free them from their lives. So that is... Uh, the, th- the functions of the law, again, not exhaustive, and we can certainly spend much more time on it. But uh, I kind of want to just work through some of these. And, we're, again, I'm going to skip over the Holy Supper of Christ because we're going to talk about that more in depth on our sacrament episode. But I want to go to the person of Christ. This is Article uh, 8, and we're going to read through it pretty quick. Uh, it says, In connection to the controversy of the Holy Supper, a disagreement had arisen between authentic theologians of the Uxpert Confession and the Calvinists who have misled some other theologians also concerning the person of christ the two natures of christ and their properties the chief question has been because the personal union of the person of christ do the divine and human natures together with their properties really that is indeed in, deed, in deed and truth share with each other and how far does this sharing extend the sacraments has have asserted that in Christ the divine and human natures are personally united in such a way that neither of the two really, that is indeed in truth share in the properties of the, of the other, but have in common only one name. They declare bodily that the personal union makes merely the names common so that God is called man and man is called God. But that god really that is indeed and in truth have has nothing in common with humanity in that ma- humanity really has nothing in common with the deity its ma- majesty and its properties dr luther and his followers have contended for the opposite view against the sacraments the anti the affirmative thesis here and this one's a bit long um there's 18 statements in it. We're not going to read all 18 just for time's sake, but we're going to read a couple just to get an idea of what they say here. Uh, the te- peer teaching of the Christian church concerning the person of Christ to explain and settle the controversy according to Christian faith, we teach, believe, and confess the following. That the divine and human natures are personally united in Christ in such a way that there are not two Christ's, one the Son of God and the other the Son of Man, but a single individual in both the Son of God and the Son of Man, Luke 1.3. 35 in Romans 9:5. We believe teach and confess that the divine and human nature are not fused into one essence and that the one is not changed into the other but that it retains its essential properties and that they never become the properties of the other nature. The properties of the divine natures are omnipotence, eternity, in infinity, and in, according to the natural property by itself, omni, omnipresence, omniscience, etc., which have become properties of the human nature, which never become properties of the human nature. I should clarify that. The attributes of the human nature are, a corp, are to be a corporal creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and circ, uh, circumscribed, to suffer and die, to ascend and to descend, and to move from one place to the other. To endure hunger, thirst, cold, heat, and the like, which never become the properties of the divine nature. And so, and it goes on and continuously, you know, we might visit this in next week's episode a little bit more too. Let's do that. Let's, uh, we'll read up to statement nine here, and then we'll pause for the week, and then we'll pick up with statement 10 next week. Because I really find this to be fascinating and hopefully helpful and your articulation uh, of the nature of Christ. So let's read Statement 9. Well, technically it's Statement 5, but yeah, I got two numbers here, right? either or. <laughs> Since both natures are united personally, that is, in one person, we believe, teach, and confess that this personal union is not a combination or connection in s- and of such a kind that neither nature has anything in common with the other. Uh with the other personally that is on account of the personal union got a little tied up there my I'm looking at essentially a black screen with white letters and I like my lines just kind of (laughs) I don't know maybe I need glasses all right let's continue as when two boards are glued together and neither gives anything to or takes anything from the other on the contrary here is the highest communion with God truly uh, which God truly has with man out of his personal union and resonant exalted, and infallible sharing there flows everything human that is said and believed about God and everything divine that is said and believed about Christ the man. Ancient fathers have illustrated this union and sharing of the natures by the analogy of incandescent iron in the uh, in the union of the body and the soul of man. All right, so we're going to pause here, and we'll pick back up with statement 10. Um, next week. And we will look at, uh, Christ's descent into hell. That'll be a fun one. Uh, the church usages and, uh, called Audi I love that word. I actually use that all the time in my church because I get people who, uh, like to, you know, try to, uh, say something. And I'm like, eh, it's kind of an Audi thing. You know, it's really the color of the carpet. Who cares? You know? So we either go or we don't go. It doesn't matter either way. So we'll talk about that. God's eternal foreknowledge and election and other factions which have committed. Now I do want to go back and we'll look at the apology too a little bit, I think, in terms of a couple of the articles, if we want to touch base on any more of those in depth. Again, I tried to survey through the apology and uh, quickly touch base on some of those. So I might revisit a few a little bit more in depth, but uh, again, the premise is to really articulate and demonstrate uh, the Lutheran understanding of the doctrine why do we have the Augsburg confession those 28 articles and then how do we explain those and that's my big uh, goal in this series so uh, we will be back next week we'll pick up part two of uh, affirmative theses on the person of Christ um, and we will uh, continue on with our series on let's see if today's Tuesday this Friday will be the book of Psalms so We will uh, have a new episode dropping Friday, and if you are interested in joining us on Patreon, you can do so and get these episodes a lot earlier than uh, they would be released, and you'll get exclusive content. I'm working through Hosea with them. They uh, have uh, up till the end of chapter four done for them, and uh, they've got three baptismal episodes already, and obviously they get these two weekly ones, so... Come join us, uh, patreon.com forward slash undine light. Uh, Links are in the show notes. You can find it on my Instagram page, or uh, you can DM me if you have questions, and I'll point you right where you want to go. And I must be boring because my son is asleep in my arms, mouth gaping like he hadn't slept in a month. It's the cutest thing in the world, kiddos. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that takes care of this week. I hope you have a wonderful week. God bless. We'll see you Friday.